Carlos. Hey, Matt. What's going on? Episode two. Episode two. Welcome back. Welcome back, everyone. Yeah. You know, they say uh, if you have one of something, you have none of something. You ever hear that before? I believe the phrase is if you have, if everyone has everything, then everyone has nothing. Okay. Isn't that it? Yeah. I mean, like, it's the same way to say that, I guess, but fair well, enough. I don't know. Well, what do you mean when you say if you have one of something, you have nothing. I was just implying that if we have one podcast episode, then we don't have a podcast. So we needed to come back yeah. and do a second one. Ah, okay. Got it. Yeah. I I honestly have not. I, I don't think I've heard of that one. I have heard multiple times that, you know, if everyone's getting a penalty, then nobody has a penalty, right? Right. Or like in marketing, if all text is bold, um, no text is bold. So Right. Right. Exactly. Hey, I got a question for you. Speaking of podcasts, do you listen to your podcast at 1.5x speed? I don't. Normally, I do not. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I'll watch YouTube videos at 1.5x speed. But most of the time when I'm listening to podcasts, I am either driving or I'm on my run. I like to listen to podcasts while running, which I know a lot, many people do, but I like to have the podcast fill the time of my run. So, you know, I know if, an, if I see an episode, a podcast episode is 45 minutes, that times pretty well with most of my runs and yeah, I just like the pacing of it. Do you listen to pods on one and a half X speed? Yeah, sometimes even 2x speed, depending on how slow the speaker is. So I like hearing podcasts at 1.5 speed because I feel like I get more of them in in a shorter time period. And I feel like with audio, I can soak up the information. I actually think it's interesting that you don't, but you'll watch a video at 1.5x speed. Isn't it weird seeing people move 50% faster? Most YouTube videos are essentially podcasts. Most of them are Ooh, like hot take. Well, yeah. So rarely is a YouTube channel or a YouTube video appointment viewing where you're actually sitting down to watch it. Like nine and a half times out of 10, you're going to put a YouTube video on and it's in the background. So it's either like, it could be like while you're eating a meal, doing chores, doing work. Although I don't like to have videos on while I work. Although, like I just said, it's a podcast. You know, you know, so essentially, you know, a lot of the marketing YouTube channels I watch, they're essentially just relaying information that could just be a podcast. Except for those times when they're screen sharing like a certain software um, or a platform where it's you know helpful to view what they're sharing to get the context, then yeah, I mean I'll I'll do that one FX speed. I guess it also comes down like on that point, it comes down to what the actual content is, right? Um, whether it's like work related, professional, right, or if it's recreational, something more you know, hobby related, if it's mm -hmm. a niche sport podcast, sports podcast versus a, you know, a business podcast and what kind of relationship I feel like I have with that podcaster or like, you know, how, how much do I actually want to like listen to them banter with each other as opposed to just hearing information or hearing a conversation with a host and a guest, you know? 
Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so I've been doing the 1.5 speed so long that I've tried to slow it back down to one and I just can't do it. And it's not because I get, all right, well, that's a lie. I do get bored, but it's because it sounds like the host has less energy because at 1.5 speed, it kind of puts a natural energy and pep into their voice where at one X it's more drawn out. And I'm just like, Oh my God, get on with it. You know? Sounds like you've tra trained your, your brain to listen to, to take in podcasts at more at a higher speed, one and a half or two times. I do this with speed. audible too. With that books. makes sense. I don't know if you do that, but so hey, it's I'll there for a books reason. at three X speed sometimes. As yeah, right. As long as you're still retaining the information, getting the the value that you would get out of whatever it is that you're listening to, like, and you're efficient. I know you're efficient, so I'll power yeah. to. I'm curious to know how many people, what people who listen to this, if they're gonna listen to normal speed, one and a half, two x. Tell us. Let us know. Email us, or leave a comment in the review. Yeah, uh, please review this podcast and tell us, are you listening to it in one and a half speed, 2X? I'm curious to know. I bet I bet we both sound very peppy at 2X or one, even one and a half. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, leave a comment, subscribe, do all that good stuff. Carlos, whoop check-in time. We need, we need some catchy music here like whoop check-in you know what i mean it's the whoop check-in yeah hashtag like whoop that. sponsor us yeah <laughs> so i'm i'll tell you right now i'm at 29 percent today oof i'm in the red and it's because i started marathoning marathon training this week so i'm running the new york city marathon this year and it's the first week of July as we are recording this. And the training schedule is about 18, I think 18 weeks out or 13 weeks. It's one of the two. So this is the first week. So I have ran over 12 miles in the last three days. I ran three miles one day, three miles. No, I'm sorry. I ran 11 miles. So I ran three miles, three miles and five miles um, in the three days before today. And, um, did some other stuff there. I was on July 4th vacation with my wife, uh, and we were down at her parents' place in Delaware and there's, you know, pickleball courts, there's a pool, there's a beach. So we, uh, you know, in addition to the training, I was, you know, very active. So my strain score, it was over 15.8 all three days, the lowest it was, was 15.8, which is high for those who don't know what whoop is. And they're one of their, so yeah, one of their measurements is a strain and they measure it on a scale from zero to 21. Actually, I think it's 22, but rarely you ever, you never see someone at 22. If, if anything, you'll see them at like 21.5. And mm -hmm. it's a measure of how strenuous you, your body was for that day. Um, and so they'll even tell you, Swoop will tell you like, you should be at this amount of strain today, given your recovery for the day, given all the other factors, your heart and your sleep. 
Uh, those are the inputs basically. And I exceeded all of the recommended strains for the past three days and coupled with not great sleep last night. Um, so it equates to 29% for me today and I'm resting today. <clears throat> nice. Um, so the fact that you're running is kind of cool. I am not a runner. The last thing I ran to was the bathroom right before this podcast. <laughs> um, also cool that you played life-size ping pong. I saw pickleball balls at BJ's the other day on the weekend, and I almost bought some because I'm very tempted to set up a pickleball, pickleball court or whatever you call it, playground area in our backyard on our property. So... You can start with one in your driveway. You can buy a pickleball net as long as you have a flat, flatter surface, which I think you do. Um, Somewhere. It's, it's yeah, you'll see them in driveways. But yes, if you want to build a court, I'll power it to you. I think we talked, we talked about pickleball in the last, in the last episode. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's sweeping the nation. It has swept the nation. There was an article in the New York Times about pickleball noise um, and how that's affecting people, how people are not very happy with it, about oh, it. boy. Yeah, it's one of those things. I, I hear the neighbors now. Honey, the neighbors are playing the pickleball again. That I would love to hear that at 2x speed and what that sounds like. <laughs> but yeah. it, to be fair, it is a very loud pop like each hit is just it's loud it's it's weird and to your to your comment about it being life-size ping pong it's a good analogy i think it is somewhere in between ping pong and like badminton um and the ball kind of looks like a wiffle ball um it is it has holes in it which makes it you know not go as far right um and there's right. all the spin to it so yeah anyway you know casually played some down um down and where you know my in-laws have a summer home and uh yeah contributed to the high strain matt what's your strain score today or what's your oh, recovery score where are you yeah, at yeah so my recovery score is about a 44 that is entirely anecdotal again <laughs> because i forgot to put the freaking whoop strap on my wrist last night oh my gosh i haven't worn it in three days so here's what happened first of all to the listeners out there, I am a human, unlike Carlos, who is a robot and wore this for 1,200 days straight. So I'm impressed with you. But I was wearing it, and I played baseball, and I took it off because I wear wrist tape, and it wouldn't work well under wrist tape, obviously, where it would be very uncomfortable. And then I completely forgot to put it back on. So it's on now, again. So my anecdotal score for the weekend is 44. But so that's, I am just, working. that's just where you're putting yourself for today. Yeah. 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 Did you get a score? How about this? Did you get a score last week? The day after we recorded our first I episode? certainly did. Let me pull it up. So my score from last week was not on July 4th, 3rd, 2nd. Here we go. July 1st, 70%. That is the last time I wore it. I had a 70% recovery. 
and then I played baseball. So, but I'm back at it. I'm back in the saddle, like they say. And I will have a score for you the rest of the week. 70 is pretty next good. Time we record. Sounds great. All right, let's move on. Um, so in the last episode, Matt, you shared with us how you make money. Um, and this week it's my turn. And so I'll jump right in. I, um, okay. So at the moment there are, there's kind of one, there's one main income stream and then another one that's in development. Uh, well, two, if you count the, uh, SaaS product that you, Matt, you and I are working on. Um, and you mentioned that last time. So that's, I'm not even including that one right now, but let's, you know, put that there on the board as one, but the, the, the main one right now, I'm a mark, you know, the, I'm a marketing consultant, uh, specifically lifecycle marketing consulting. I work with currently two clients. Uh, there might be one more here soon. Um, and my two clients are very different. One is uh, a B2B biotech company uh, that has an element of B2C when we market to patients um, or you know, do design messaging, design campaigns geared towards patients. And then the other one is a, is a sports client, um, actually a golf client. And sorry, I... Uh, a golf client that I've been working with for quite a while now, uh, over three years, um, and big, a big, uh, thing about me that I don't think I've shared yet here is that I'm a big golfer or I think I did share that. Maybe I did, did. say that last time. You definitely shared that. I definitely shared that. Okay. Yeah. So I'm a big golf, golf guy, big golf nut. And so working with this one particular client has been, uh, very, very rewarding, very exciting for me personally. Uh, and then I mentioned another stream of income that is in the works, and that is um, course creation. So I'm going to, I'm creating a course based on my expertise, my knowledge within lifecycle marketing, very specifically how to grow an email list. And that course will be up soon soonish i will definitely let you know and i will i think i'll i'll uh, you know keep keep us updated on how that is going and what that looks like for me nice so you mentioned specifically you called out life cycle marketing i'm curious if you can expand on what life cycle marketing is life cycle marketing the best anal okay so let me give you an analogy um, think of the brand. It's it's like it's it's basically relationship building and funnel marketing. I know those are two different things, but the way to, the way I the best way I can describe it is if a brand is like if you're trying to attract someone to be your partner in life, a lover, a a, a girlfriend, or even you know a, a married, a, a, you know a, a husband or wife or life partner, however you want to identify. You, you know, the brand, every customer, every potential customer, there's an element of that. So, 
you know, the life cycle is you, you and the brand, Matt, let's say, you know, you want to, um, you, you know, you don't know what Apple is. Obviously a lot of people do, but let's just say you're not aware of Apple. Apple wants you to become aware of them. And then they, they want you to become interested enough to evaluate them. And then they want you to take that evaluation and actually seriously consider purchasing and then purchase. So awareness, evaluation, um, consideration, conversion. Those are in, in sequential order. Those are four steps uh, of a funnel. And as a lifecycle marketer, it's my job to take you from that very first initial stage of being totally unaware of a brand to, you know, becoming to purchasing and maybe even becoming a champion and evangelist of that brand. Um, of course, right. Like Apple, they want to get everybody, everybody who wants a computer, right. That is the, or any kind of gadget. That's, that's what they're solving for, right. The, the hardware, obviously they do a lot of other stuff too. Right. But, you know, when you think of Apple, you think of a MacBook or you think of an iPhone, you would think of a device, a hardware, a piece of hardware. They want, that's, you know, that's what they're, the solution, the, the, the value they're offering you, the problem they're solving for. It starts there, right? Like, you know, the, you as a target audience and then a brand, like the brand is going to, you know, have a very specific purpose for you. And part of a lifecycle marketer's job is, to make you aware that that brand exists and solves your problem and then take you on that journey, AKA that life cycle from totally unaware to becoming, you know, fully aware. And again, going back to the analogy, it's like, I don't know who you are or I don't know who Margaret Robbie is, but all of a sudden Margaret Robbie is at a bar and I go to that bar. I'm aware that Margaret Robbie exists. And then I go over to Margaret Robbie this analogy actually probably works better the other way around, right? Like Margaret Robbie gives me her phone number. Oh my gosh, I have her phone number. I'm going to like text her. I'm going to call her. And then we go on our first date. And then, you know, six to 18 months, six to 12 months later, we're moving in together. And then like one to three years later, we're married, right? Those are all like very similar things here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Those are all very like, that is analogous to like what, my job is, you know, yeah, analogy. I'm, I, as your friend, I have to remind you, you're a married man and you should stop going after Margot Robbie. Um, <laughs> I have a question. So, how are you judged as a life cycle marketer? Like, you start at the top of the funnel and you bring people to the bottom of the funnel. Is that like a stat you keep? Obviously, it depends on the industry, but yeah. So, the, it is a stat I keep. More very specifically, the, the each one of those stages I outlined, broadly outlined, which is awareness, uh, evaluation, consideration, conversion. Each one of those has there's a life cycle stage for each one of those, uh, for every brand, and each one of those is a there's a conversion rate between each each love each life cycle stage. So you can measure you know with a numerator and denominator how many people how many users, however, whatever the metrics are specifically, you can measure like how many people go from here to here, right? They view a page and and then like, you know, evaluation, like it's opt-in, like emails. So I'm a big email guy, email guy. So like 
you know, someone getting someone to opt into your email is a clear signal of that they're evaluating you, they're, that they're interested to learn more about you, um, but they're not, you know, they haven't purchased yet, right? Subscribing to email is free, right? But letting someone in, letting a brand into your inbox is not exactly something that a lot of people take lightly. Most, you know, in most cases, right? Um, so yeah, all of these levels, all, I'm sorry, all these stages are measured and there's a conversion rate, there's a metric, there's, a, there's all these KPIs that we have in a dashboard to gain a sense of performance. Yeah, that's a good, uh, good analogies. Um, you just brought something up and I think it's a fantastic segue into one of our meaty topics for today, which is a podcast topic called email marketing and Gen Z's multiple inboxes. So you said it's essentially a big deal for a brand, for someone to let a brand into your inbox. Can you talk about this? What do you mean by Gen Z's multiple inboxes? Yeah, well, first, let me just say that I consider the inbox to be a sacred place for each person. Um, most of the time, so, some people will just, you know, get, well, even if your inbox is full of tens of thousands of emails at this point, right, you're, you're still just letting brands into your, or, you know, you want emails that you want to read or, or at least be aware of, right? Um, even if you're not opening an email, you're seeing a subject line, you're aware that this brand exists, that they're contacting you. Um, you know, they're still making an impact in your inbox if they're sending you an email that you, and you're still receiving it. You haven't gone through the effort of unsubscribing. You went through some effort to subscribe in the first place. Um, in the specific case of Gen Z, so I've heard, and this actually this practice may not actually just be isolated to Gen Z, but um, from what I've heard, this is something that is prevalent. Or rather, you know, the practice that a lot of people in the Gen Z generation do, they have multiple inboxes, um, meaning they they have a truly personal email inbox that's for family and friends, um, and that's that's one email address. They have they have another email address that's specifically for discounts and sweepstakes, so opting into a pop up. Asking you for twenty percent, asking you for your email to get twenty percent off a brand, um, or if you know, if you see a newsletter that you you don't actually want in your personal inbox, you could send it there. Um, the Gen Z also ha has might have a professional email, so you know if if my personal email is um, the greatest Carlos Lou ever, you know, then the professional email might be like. Carlos Liu, lifecycle marketer at gmail.com, right? So it's something tailored to the professional life. Um, and then there might be a random one. That's kind of the 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 one that's for random stuff like creating burner accounts or, you know, uh, you know, other account creation stuff that you don't want to use any of the other three inboxes. So three to four email addresses, Gen Z, that's that's what I've heard. Um uh, and as an email marketer, as a lifecycle marketer, the challenge is to get into the inbox that they're going to read. Um, I haven't seen any brands, any companies address this head on. You'll see companies say, um, 
this might just be more in the B2B SaaS world, but like to enter a business email address, that's what they require, right? To make the quality mm -hmm. of that lead as high as, you know, as high quality as possible. So it's not a Gmail address. It's got to be a business domain email address, but no company yet. So that's, that, that's a thing, but I don't think I've seen anyone be like, especially a D to C brand or a B to B to C brand say, Hey, like give us your, you know, best email address or any kind of wording or copy alluding to like, don't give us your shitty email address. Give us like, you know, don't give us your email for spam, your email for like bullshit. Like we are, we, we will respect you. We will give you value to your inbox. Give us, you know, enter your like personal email. Give us your real, your best email, quote unquote. I think it's interesting. I've put this topic out there in some Slack groups. People have mentioned that, yes, they've seen it, but they haven't done anything. Some lifecycle marketing Slack groups. Um, there is the the Gmail hack. I don't know if so. If you don't know this, you can with Gmail do, you know, whatever your email address is. So, um, you know, Carlos at gmail.com. You can do Carlos plus newsletter, golf newsletter, Carlos plus golf newsletter at gmail.com, and it still goes to the the you know that that Carlos at gmail.com inbox, but you can know like where you know what email address you opted into and like why you did it with that with whatever input you, you use after the plus that was a lot i'll pause there i'm sure you have questions <laughs> yeah so i have a bunch of questions um first since we most recently talked about the gmail hack that is awesome i didn't realize that that was a thing so then with the plus whatever Gmail hack, you can then filter into folders based on which email address it came through pretty efficiently. Yeah, correct. Yeah, you can do a lot of tagging. You can do a lot of fun stuff in your Gmail inbox. This is very this is specific to Gmail. I haven't seen any other email client do it, or rather that that you can do it with any other email client. But exactly. And another thing, another use case is you could, you know, if you're entering in your email address to a brand that might give your email address, might sell your you know, your information to someone else, right? Like you can identify kind of the source essentially of where that, you know, where that email, like how they got your email. That's one, one use case as well, in addition to like the sorting, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's interesting. So how about you? What strategy do you have around email? You mean in terms of capturing emails? Uh, in terms of your own email addresses. Do you have multiple inboxes? Do you have one inbox? Where do you stand? I have one inbox. I have a lot of tags. I have some filters. I have the same Gmail address that I created in college to Gchat with friends in, stat, in stats class in college. Is it like Carlos sixty nine sixty nine at gmail.com. It's, exact, it's exactly that. No, I'm kidding. Please don't email Carlos sixty nine and sixty nine at gmail.com. But it is something <laughs> like that. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna share it here, but uh it is an email address that when I created it, I did not think that it would be my email address for the rest of my life. And lo and behold, here we are. I just kept going with it. Just made sense. 
Um, yeah, again, it was in college. It was, gosh, 15 years ago, something like that, you know, when yeah. I created that particular email address that I continue to use as my main personal email address. And like I said, I will unsubscribe to anything that I don't want. I unsubscribe aggressively. Um, well, you know, I also do, I like to enter my email just to see flows, to see, you know, as an email marketer, as an email guy, I like to see how people are, how brands are doing email, sending, you know, what strategies, how they're thinking about it. What, what are the trends? What are they looking at? And just seeing that in your inbox is good. I, yeah, I am, like I said, I have a lot of tags and a good amount of filters. Yeah, that's awesome. I uh I need to get better with filtering and tagging, but I also keep in bug zero. So I will sign up to newsletters, but I will aggressively unsubscribe if the content isn't timely or valuable. So we should certainly I would love to talk more about email. Um like email habits and how and email marketing stuff too. I think that's worth diving into in a future episode. I just refer today the 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 Gen Z's multiple inboxes. You know, I've heard of it as a thing. That's that's certainly the you know the the practice of that makes sense for a generation that is so technically technologically um like deep into technological, you know, stuff. Savvy. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Technologically savvy because they're just like born with it. Right. Right. Um, like you and I are both millennials and we didn't get iPhones until later in life. And, you know, I think we're savvy compared to other generations, of course, but the generation after us, they're just like on another level. Yeah. So I've, before we go on to the next topic, I actually, since you just said, you know, they're technologically savvy and they're essentially born with iPhones. Did you hear about the, here's a fun fact. Gen Z's pinkies are starting to have little tough spots or rough spots right where the iPhone or Android, whatever you use sits on their pinky. And so it's kind of like a live human evolution thing. Oh my gosh right before everyone's eyes. And when I heard this, I was like, there's no fucking way. But then I actually checked my pinky and it's true. I have like a little rougher patch right on the. A callus basically, right? Essentially. Yeah. Cause if you are watching this on video, you can see how I'm holding my iPhone here. My pinky sits right under and that's where it always is. And yeah, I have a calloused pinky because of this. So humans are evolving to hold these phones. What do you, what do you make of that? It makes sense. It's, you know, I think about asking a younger, asking the younger generations, you know, someone calls you on the phone. How do you, how do you answer the phone? And you and I, and everyone older than us would go like this. And for, you know, podcast listeners, what I'm doing is putting my pinky out and holding my thumb up to my ear, right? Like 
as if you're answering the phone, you know, picking up a phone, right? Yep. Whereas like generate the younger generations will hold it as if they're holding the iPhone, right? They're like, it's like they're holding a box in their hand, putting yeah. it up to their face. Cause that's, that's how they answer phones. That's how the, that is the only phone they ever knew. The, the, the only phone that, that, you know, ever existed for them. There was never a rotary phone. <laughs> we didn't really have rotary phones either, but you but know, I like did a house... when I was a kid. Okay. I'm a landline. my age, but yeah. A landline, right? Yeah. I mean, the, I think I had rotary phones as well. So yeah, like that to me is a signal of a generational divide and a change in behavior. And it makes sense that from that change of behavior becomes like a physical adaptation. I don't know. It doesn't sound like the 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 callus on the finger is going to do like what is that going to do? <laughs> I mean, it's not the most useful physical adaptation, but or maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe in 100 years humans are going to be born with these calluses. If assuming iPhones are still around. But I mean, the in iPhone 100 years, 100. Yeah. The iPhone 100 is going to be implanted into your head. Yeah, like probably. You're not even gonna. You're not even gonna hold it. You right. know? That's the, crazy. That's the a speed topic. at which. That's another whole other topic. Yeah. A whole another wormhole. But. Um, yeah. I on this topic, I do really quickly want to say I remember when I was 16, holding a flip phone, and thinking to myself, at some point in my lifetime, I'm gonna be able to watch TV from this thing. And, I didn't know what it was gonna be look like. Obviously comes to look like you know a little tv in your hand that also also a phone that is you know mini computer um so yeah i i distinctly remember that and here we are that says anything about you know six futurist 16 year old carlos I, yeah you know i am so i'm super bullish on like where tech is going i i don't want to go too deep into a tangent but I am 100% going to embrace just regular eyeglasses that are essentially augmented reality screens over your field of vision. I intend to never carry a phone again once those are released. So, yeah, the augmented reality is certainly the next step. It's in between holding a phone and having a chip planted in your head. Yeah. Closer to the eyes, having a heads up display, Iron Man style to, you know, do everything that's on the screen of your iPhone or whatever smartphone you have doing that. Oh, okay. All right. Let's move on before we go deeper into any other tangents, but we should definitely table this conversation for another time. For sure. So I think for our last topic, um, we were talking about the idea or the take of is distribution greater than product in I think here I'm specifically talking about software products, but I think that can also apply to courses like online courses, because you can take a fantastic online course, and then you can take a completely dreadful online course. And so I'm curious what your initial reaction is to the question, is distribution greater than product? And then I'll give my take. Yeah, so it, I think it just it depends. Ultimately, it depends on what the product is and who the audience is and what 
what's what's all what's what problem the product is trying to solve um and then what distribution channels right are actually effective i think of companies like a dropbox that has a network effect type of distribution a product led growth type of distribution where you know you um matt as a member of a company to use the product and to share file with me carlos a member of that same company you know i have to have a dropbox you 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 become you know a user and for me to become a user for me to work with you using it you know i have to become a user slack is another example right um but yeah i think it really depends ultimately i you know a lot of this is growth and as a life cycle marketer i'm also a growth marketer and so i like to think that without any growth marketing or like you know effective distribution the product is nothing so i would agree generally with the take that distribution is um uh like more important than product but yeah what what's your take or can you dive into what your you know what your thought is yeah so for sure um so for me personally and i thought i would go kind of back and forth on this a little bit but today like if i put my uh early stage startup founder hat on i think product absolutely needs to come first before distribution so i think it it's dependent on the stage but for early stage founders product is way more important than distribution because if you distribute a garbage product you are going to have a high churn rate you are not going to have and be able to build recurring revenue and frankly you're just going to piss off a whole lot of people who are not going to like your brand very much and they're not going to spread the word so you're really just shooting yourself in the foot that's my take what do you make of that i think that in the startup world there's product market fit and traditionally product market fit is like if 40 percent of people that you survey that use your product say that you cannot that they cannot live without your product then you have you have something that you have a fit so more people will say that your product sucks or that you they don't care about your product so i think there's certainly a an extent to which i agree to your take to what you're saying here are you familiar okay. with like the product market fit kind of like oh this yeah. is from yeah you're familiar with that so very I, familiar I think it was Sean Ellis, somebody, I think it was Sean Ellis, um, who is a growth guy. And he, it was the one who came up with that, that metric essentially. Um, I, I think you just have to accept that like your product is going to suck at first, but there's a threshold at which it should like not suck. And then you start building traction and then yes, it'll be. It should be, it should wow people, right? It should like, aha, like you should get to that aha moment. Right. So along with that, so you brought up product market fit. I think there's something, I don't know if you've heard this term before, but product founder fit. Have you heard about that before? I've not. Uh, so this yeah, dives into me. the idea that 
the product needs to be right. It has to be the right product for the right founder. Otherwise, you're likely going to fail because you're not going to be interested in it long term to see it through. You have to be passionate about it. You, you most certainly have to have an interest in what you're working on. I think a lot of people try to just wing it. So I actually wanted to go through four different hot takes on what I would call personally horrible startup advice. And I'm going to give you my take and I want to hear you react to them. How's that sound? Sound fun? It sounds awesome. Let's do it. All right, cool. So take number one, horrible startup advice. Take number one. I think your product can absolutely not suck if you want it to exist for longer than a year. So essentially you can distribute the product all day, plow money into ads, but if you have high churn rate and you need to turn over your customer base one to two times a year, hopefully not more, you're just pissing potential long-term customers off and you're defeating the purpose of building recurring predictable revenue. What is, in your mind, a high churn rate? I would say a high churn rate is if you have completely turned over your customer base within a year. So LTV is lower than 12 months, generally. Okay. So if, yeah. you're, if you're at like a four-month LTV... You kind of you're you're kind of fucked essentially. Sure, but generally, like, there's also the CAC. So it, I mean, it's interesting to hear you say, you know, plowing through um, ad spend, spending a lot, right? Uh, that's another input to take into consideration. Because if you're if your life LTV is four months, or rather, you know four months of subscription. So if it's $30 a month, four months LTV of 120, right? Right. So if it's a $30 a month thing, let's just, yeah. But if your cost to, your LTV is 120, but if your cost to acquire someone is less than $40, that's generally, generally rule of thumb is three to one. Three to one is an, is a, is a good indication that there's something there. Um, so again, going back to like distribution, like you're, you know, I, I think a lot of founders' mindsets are to just, in, you know, pull the lever of ad spend, more money, more ad spend spent equates to this money users. And I don't think that's always the case. And I think you, if you're smart about it, if a growth marketer, a growth person is smart about it, they will get that CAC down to like a quality number uh, or rather a, a number that gets to, you know, uh, you're still acquiring quality users at a, at a number that, um, uh, is, is, is that will fit. That's a, it's a healthy number to your LTV to CAC ratio. So I don't know. I, I'm, I like this take. I, I I net out to liking this take. I do think there's a lot of nuance there that like, you know, is worth taking into consideration. Okay. I'll, I'll take that. So let's go to take two. <laughs> take two. 
If the market is already saturated with plenty of competition, you must have a great product in order to win out in the end. So my, my, my reasoning here is that essentially, I think software is absolutely mature. I'm talking about the B2C, B2B SaaS market. I don't think generally it's going to be an extremely easy uh, process to find a completely new product that's going to wow somebody in the B2C, traditional B2B, B2C SaaS space. And so when you pick a market and you have to go in and compete in that market, you cannot deliver a crappy product. You will not build a customer base and you will go out of business. So long-term, or as a matter of fact, as we've evolved, as the SaaS market has evolved, table stakes features have gone up. And so what I mean by table stakes is essentially the number of features you need just to come to the table and play in the game. And it's only going to keep getting harder and harder for bootstrapped founders to enter a market and compete. Yeah, this take feels like not first I agree with this take. It's almost obvious to a certain extent. Um entering a market, I would love to do, double click on that and, and tell me like what's an example? Or you know, because where my head's going is I think a lot of SaaS products, a lot of founding teams, especially the growth on the growth side and the distribution side which is where i'm coming from in my from my professional career there is like a strategic narrative that is set that is brought to the table and a lot of these strategic narratives these days are redefining certain segments of a market or verticals of a market or not verticals excuse me like they're just kind of recontextualizing you know certain softwares that like, you know, in one, some people might consider like payments, but others might say, no, 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 this is subscriptions. Like this is, this is no longer, you know, and we're moving away from like merchant payments to like recurring subscription models, like for everything, you know? Um, so like the strategic narrative, right? Like you're coming into a saturated market market and you're telling, and, and like the, the the product the the founders the 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 growth team they're like no 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 there's a whole new way to think about this and this is why you need us you know so it's one i think it's one way to come around to get around like the saturate the saturation of a market is sure. to say so i i could see that but i'm so if i put my buyer hat on let's say i'm comparing some CMS that's been on the market for 10 years and the new awesome YC company that has a bunch of growth marketers in their founding team. And they've developed a interesting take on why they're better than what's out there, but they have 120th of the useful features. I might try you and I may pay for you for four months, back to your four months LTV of a customer. Well, that but, was you. Well, that's my point. At that fourth month, I'm going to go, you know what? This is cool, but I need so much more. You don't have feature X, Y, and Z. And I don't think that anyone 
for the most part, is going to stick around, even if you're saying, hey, we hear you, but we're going to build that next. I still, I need to run a business today. So I'm not going to wait around for 12 months while you and your team build that thing. I may come back to you in 12 months if you've built it, but it's going to be much harder for you to compete with other providers. Yeah. No, I mean, that. look, that makes sense. If you're competing in a space that is saturated and the big players like a Salesforce or even a HubSpot have all these features that you just you don't have. I think a lot of startups, you know, disrupt. <laughs> they're like coming into, they're like, they're solving a very niche case or I'm sorry, a niche problem, right? That isn't being addressed well by the big dogs. And while doing that, they're also telling you, Matt, from bigcompany.inc or whatever, like this is this is the new way to think about, you know, your video um, comms, right? Or like a new way to think about how we do whiteboarding online, you know, we do remote whiteboarding. Um, it's just like, that's what startups do, right? They like come in and disrupt something and like, they're like better, they wow. Yes. I Look, I I love your take. I think what I'm getting at is that I see too many people quitting too early, right? Mm -hmm. So everyone, yeah. dude, I've had so many coworkers in the past who are like, yeah, I'm thinking about starting a startup, right? And they change startups like they change their underwear, right? So let's actually jump to another take that I always hear um, early stage founders repeat, and I don't know why. But uh, that's doing X startups in X months. So I'm sure you've heard of like 12 startups in 12 months. The idea that you're going to start a new startup every month until you find one that sticks also can be wrapped up as failing fast, as like a positive. The idea that failing fast is said almost in a positive way, that drives me crazy. The idea that you're failing as fast as possible. What do you take? What do you make of that? First of all, I, um, I agree that like the idea of doing twelve startups in twelve months is ridiculous, and so failing fast. Yeah, I also think that's silly. It's it's just it's a judgment call, knowing when to cut your losses, to move on. Uh conviction, right? Startups, startup founders, like they you need to be passionate about what you're doing, and so if you feel like like giving up early, it just sounds yeah, sounds lame. I don't know. It's it's it's, an, it's a good. I mean, I agree with your take. Yeah. I'm just saying, I think a lot of early stage startup founders would benefit from not just throwing shit at the wall and seeing, what's, seeing what sticks month after month. And instead, jump into a market that you're going to actually build something in long term and eventually just compete. Maybe first you're competing on price because you have less features, but eventually as you add more features because you haven't quit, 
you raise your price and you raise your price. And before you know it, you're up with the big boys and you're competing with them long-term. What if you don't, what if your, your hypothesis is proving to be incorrect? Like what if you, you know, there are signals in 12 months, within that 12 months period, when you first launch a product, go to market that, for example, the, 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 the product market fit metric that we were, that we referred to earlier, you know, what if less than 40% of people saying are saying that they cannot live without your product? What do you do then? You just keep going after it? So keep going? I once heard this and I forgot where I heard it, but I love it. I don't trust any number or any stat that ends in zero because it's likely just marketing BS. Right. So suppose 40%, it's not 40% that love your product, but it's 38%. Do you then just drop it? Like, ah, we didn't meet the 40%. Never mind. Let's scrap this because Sean Ellis or whomever said this said it had to be 40%. I mean, 3.8 out of 10. I would round that up to four. I think the, the zeros thing is really just like a, you know, nice round number in a lot of cases, but would you, if so on like, that, would you also, so would you quit at 2.4 out of 10? Cause I mean, that's, you know, two and a half out of 10, 25%. No, that's less than 25. What am I saying? You could build a pretty big business sticking at it long enough. 25%. Yeah, I mean, it's all dependent. So much nuance here. Twenty five percent. It's a signal that, like, you can interpret it so many ways, and that's what founders will do. It's a signal of like, oh, I should get go. I should keep going because next month it might be four out of ten, or it might be over fifty percent. Right. Um, there's a lot of ways to spin this data in a investor deck, right? To whoever whoever <laughs> the stakeholders are, right? Yeah. A lot of narratives that you can create from a data point and oh, but this segment says it might be two and a half, might be two point five out of ten, you know, twenty-five percent, but it but it's actually forty percent if you just cut, you know, from this this group of people. And that's what we're gonna double down on. You know what I mean? So yeah. Yeah. So so I mean, wait, so to, to, to that extent, I think your point is very your point is valid and like you should keep going until you, you know, you absolutely can't, right? Don't give up too easily, right? Right. So you actually asked the question in there and I don't want to gloss over it because I think it's super interesting and we should talk about it. You asked at what point within 12 months would you cut your losses and move on? So I actually throw the question back at you because I'm curious. We are building a startup, Right. We are working on building a SaaS software. Suppose from launch day, and then we fast forward out 12 months, what would you have to see personally for you to say, all right, for me and my life and my career, this isn't right for me. And I'm going to move on and work on something else. So great question. Something that, I think 
It's hard to answer on the spot, but I do look to certain metrics as signals, not necessarily as like black or white um, deciding factors, right? Like it's, if we're not at this, oh, then we have to, we have to cut our losses, but there will be signals. I, I think that's a conversation we're going to have later. Um, I think there's an element of attitude here too. It's like, think about this with sports a lot as well. Like you have to go in specifically with golf because you have to, so there was a, there's a quote going around and I can relate to it so much. You spend so much time practicing and caring as if it's life or death, it's do or die. Like you have to do this, you know, practice so you get it right. But then you go into actually play. And if you have that attitude while you're playing, you'll get nervous. You just think about all the, you know, consequences, results, and you don't actually perform well. So you have to go into like actually playing as if like you don't care, as if like it's not a big deal. So I may, I bring that up to say like, you know, all this preparation, all this strategy, all these conversations, ideas, campaign building, all these hours put in, you got to go into it like nothing else matters. Like it's life or death. And then once it's out there, you kind of have to like, just, just, just let it, let it mature on its own and not like, you know, if you feel like it's life or death while, when it's out there, when it's live, when it's like in the real world, you're just going to become a ball of anxiety, or at least most people will, I think. And, and, you know, it just consumes you. It might even paralyze you. Um, and you can't let that happen. You just have to be like, okay, you know, the attitude of like, okay, cool. Like it is what it is. You know, we're going to, we're going to see the results and, and, and move along. Um, does that make sense? Am I? <laughs> yeah, it made sense. It, it's a good point, but to go back to the question, sure. What's what's a metric you would look at then? So, you mentioned it's hard to do on the spot, which I get. But like, what are some of the stats you'll look at and say, "All right, this is not where I want it to be," or "This needs to be at least here after a certain number of months in order to carry on forward." Yeah, I mean revenue numbers for sure, but revenue is so dependent on the pool of people that we're exposing it to that we're, you know, letting in or that we're trying to reach rather. So conversion rates, because at the end of the day, conversion rates are going to be indicators of, all right, if we throttle up, can we expect this conversion? Can we, you know, expect it to, to hold and thus get this many users and this much revenue, right? So... It's a lot about, it's going to be a lot about distribution. And I do also think that like the growth market fit question is, or some form of it is going to be something we should look to, that we would look to as like a signal of, should we move forward? Right. Cause it's like, if we're actually making something that people want and care about, then we should continue. And if, 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 if people don't care about this, like if, you know, five out of a hundred people, you know, half of a percent, you know, say, or 5% people say like, oh, I, I like this and 
if 95% say no, that would weigh heavily on whether we should continue or not, right? Going back to like, what is that number? Well, it's like, it's one of those cases where we'll know it when we see it. I'm doing some back of the napkin math here because I was just curious. So you said if, by, by the way, I agree with you. I, I don't think you should just hammer on and keep on keeping on if your product isn't succeeding. Like if you've gone through a year and you have less than a grand in revenue monthly, I guess, that's kind of shitty. And maybe you have to reevaluate because then it may take you 20 years just to get to the escape velocity of being able to leave a job and focus on that full time. And that would Yeah, suck. but is it is it a grand a month? Yeah. I I in that case I want to know like what is like how much are we spending to like like is it a grand from like two people? You know? Like are we what's what levers can we pull here to like get up to and if we're exhausting right. all levers and it's still a grand, then absolutely we should right consider pivoting, folding, folding shop, moving on, considering this one as like a failed hypothesis or whatever. Right. Yeah, for sure. But one thing I do want to push back on, because I think it's important when you look at it in totality, is the, if only 5% of 100 people are okay with it, then maybe we would then wrap it up because like, all right, well, 95% are saying no. But if you extrapolate that 5%, across a million people you've put it in front of, you're talking about 50,000 customers who love what you're doing. And that's a substantial business. So I guess my point is Sean Ellis and his 40% can take a hike because <laughs> it's not, it's bro science. Bro science and bro opinions. Bro opinions, yes, bringing it back. That I'm that's basically what this entire segment has been a bro opinion about horrible startup advice. All right, last take because I know we're running long, but I want to get your idea. Sorry, your opinion on the idea of MVPs. I think personally, it's a completely played out theory that has been around since the dawn of software and it has been evangelized and repeated ad nauseum and it should have died in 2016. I don't think that MVPs should be as far as you go into a product. What's your take? Generally, yes. I think it's not, I think, again, there's so much, circumstance and nuance that goes into that question. So just I'm going to zoom out and from a, you know, 50,000 foot view, like say that MVPs aren't the end all, you know, the, the, you should be able, you should go past an MVP and see what to, you should go past it to see if you can validate your hypothesis or whatever it is that you're trying to prove. It's like, you know, it's hard. There's so much like that goes into deciding when there's so much that goes into the decision of like to stop, right? And 
an MVP is not necessarily the best reflection of what it is that you're trying to put forth. So yeah. I don't know. I'm curious, Matt, why why what what brought you to this? To this yeah, take? so this goes back to the whole is distribution greater than product, right? And I think just generally, if you don't have great product, you can throw all the distribution you want at it. But if I'm selling you my MVP, or better yet, hot take. Another hot take is I'm selling you something before it's even built. I'm sure you've heard that before. Sell, Just start selling it. Throw up a landing page, see who will pay for it. That's fucking crazy to me. Like, would you pay me for a cheeseburger that I will deliver to you in six months? I've heard of guys who, or people rather, who, you know, will throw up uh, GoFundMe, right? Like four at a time. And they're for four different products that don't exist, but testing, they're testing language or they're testing messaging, um, testing where to what channels to place these GoFundMe's in. And whatever gets the most traction or like whatever gets actually the most funding, very clear KPI, very clear indicator of like success, then they just go ahead and, you know, move on from there, go actually make that product. And then the other three or four or how, however many they just fold and, you know, refund the money or whatever. And there's an element to that that, like, interests me. There's an element of that that's like, oh, that's cool. Um, you know, you can't, it forces you not to spend so much time on one thing. It forces you to just, like, get an idea out there on a landing page, a GoFundMe page, and then just, like, test distribution. But there's also an element of me that agrees with you that that is kind of bullshit. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's it I'm goes back you're... to kind of it goes back to what we said earlier. It's like if you have all of the GoFundMe's, you have no GoFundMe's, right? Yeah, you. That's interesting because this is kind of like so. These are just the things I deem as bad startup advice. I think if you and let me just say that I'm coming at this from someone who wants to build a bootstrapped, successful, profitable software company, right? So if you keep your team slim and you're not throwing a fuck ton of money at ads, wasting it and burning through it, like no one's business because you've raised, raised venture capital and you are focused on profitability, you can build a nice life for yourself, your fa other founders and your teammates, right? And that's what it's all about, right? Um, but the idea of GoFundMe's that is like the worst of the two horrible startup advices blended together. So that's 12 startups in 12 months, except it's GoFundMe. So it's 12 GoFundMe's in 12 minutes. And yeah. I'm going to see which one sticks. For sure. I, it's it's ridiculous, right? And I think it certainly is... Uh, relevant thing to your take i do have one thing i want to what one thing you just said um i makes you know i have a question based on what you just one of the things you just said which is a profitable SaaS company right so profitability as a metric for whether you should continue or not right it, there are there's going to be decisions of like where to put money what 
distribution channels or what things, what campaigns we should, you know, you'll want to invest in to gain traction. And there'll be campaigns, distribution channels, ideas that you don't invest in, right? So at one point you have to like decide, okay, this is, this wasn't right. It may very well might come to the point, come to the point where you decide this wasn't right in terms of distribution. We have to go pivot our strategy to this. But at that point, the funding and the money may not be, you know, it's not as much as it was, obviously. So profitability becomes into question. It's like, okay, how much does that play into whether you continue or not? Um, and if it's actually like feasible, feasible to continue, right? These are the real, real life, real world questions and the nuances I was kind of referring to, like about how, you know the decisions to whether to quit or not. So I'm curious to hear, like, is that what would you would you still give the same advice? That you've been giving, which is kind of this through line of like, continue, don't, don't give up, be passionate about your idea and see it through. I think it depends on the idea. So I guess an example for me in my own personal, so I'm an engineer and I'm essentially in the least cocky way of saying it, like most engineers can build virtually anything you can spit at them. And there are lines they have to walk as far as like, I don't know enough about this. And then, but then they can go learn that thing and eventually build it. So my point is, so as a software engineer, I can build a bootstrapped, simple, maybe it's an email marketing SaaS or a content management SaaS, right? And for that specific idea, if I know that the entire goal of that product is to just build something keep releasing features, jump in the market and compete with who's there. And eventually you'll hit 10K a month and then you'll hit 20 and then 30 and then 100 over time, a long period of time. And your only focus is let's keep the team slim. Let's keep trying to find campaigns that produce, whether it's two to one, three to one, whatever. And then just keep building that number long-term. The whole goal is I'm just trying to make as much profit off of this product. If the idea is otherwise, and it's like, I'm going to start a VR company that works on building brand new glasses that no one's ever seen before. And it's also going to have these new chips that no one's ever seen before because we built them from scratch. Well, yeah, if you've run out of funding, you clearly can't go forward. So I think it depends on the idea. Right. Or you maybe you've run out of funding and you were bootstrapped, but now you need to go raise money. The problem is, or I guess the good thing is, if you're a bootstrapped founder, it's going to be really hard, I think, to convince VCs that, like, hey, I've run through all my personal funding over two years and I have nothing to show for it for my VR new chip glasses, whatever. Right. Will you invest in it? You may find someone if you speak to 500,000 venture capitalists, but the odds are they're all going to look at you and go, all right, well, you you spent two years. I don't know if I'm going to give you my money to continue on with this. So I think it just depends on the mission of the company, right? Like for me right now in this stage, and I think this is something we could talk about on a next episode, the idea of a first win in business. 
the goal is let's build something profitable and let's make it so that it's kicking off so much cash that you can essentially do whatever you want in life. And that's not just for me. That's for every other founder, including you and also the teammates, right? Because you want to take care of the people who are working hard for you. So it depends on the idea. That was a tangent, but did that make no, sense? No, I think that it made sense. I think that was all relevant. Um, yeah, look, there's no easy answer to any of this. <laughs> and everyone comes at it with their own life experiences. So that makes sense. Did you, was that all your takes? Did you have one more or no? Um, do you see one that I'm missing? I don't I think, think so. I might've hit them all. I think you hit them all. Okay. This, that was a fun debate. I think not a debate, but it was a fun conversation. I think uh, we agreed with each other quite a bit. It sounds like earlier on there was a bit of disagreement, which I think is super important in podcast podcast conversations. So it doesn't sound like we're just echoing each other. Like, yeah, that's a great idea, Carlos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> great idea, man. You know everything, you know? So I think it's really good that we have some disagreements. And I think it was a very interesting topic. It's definitely a great, it's definitely good not to be an echo chamber. I hear that often on podcasts where the hosts will say something and everyone's like, oh, I totally agree with that. And let me just add my take to it too, which is kind of like rehashing the same thing. I think the next step is applying all of these takes and ideas and concepts uh, to a business. It's almost, I feel like we should look into doing a case study so that we have something tangible to refer to. Um, you know, pick pick a company and dive in um maybe put a you know our ceo for the day hats on and have the actual context of you know the company history whatever public information research we can find and you know something that's relevant to these takes here like companies that started and failed you know it started real quickly and died really quickly like you know i don't know if you remember maple it was a, a lunch delivery service backed by David Chang and other uh, food VCs, super popular in the New York City food delivery scene in 2015, 2016, like mm -hmm. rose really quickly and then died really quickly. And like, maybe that's a company that is worth looking into. I'm not saying we're going to do it. I'm just putting, throwing an example out there. I don't know. What right. do you think? Do you think it's worth uh, yeah, I think that I think this is interesting. If we set a couple of like uh, rules for the type of company we're going to look at, like, are we just looking for bootstrapped or are we looking for venture capital funded? That's a good point. Um, the Maple thing, I haven't heard of them, but 2015, 2016 sounds like the right timeline. So I'm a bit of a startup nerd myself. And that sounds like right around the time when Blue Apron was popping off and all of the competitors in that space. So it, it Maple might have just been a victim of venture capital money having nowhere else to go and because whoever the big incumbent was whether it was blue apron or not everyone else was like yeah let's just start another one with a cool one word domain name so yeah i mean i mean just to be just to be clear blue apron still exists blue apron is like food um prep like send you ingredients in nice packaging and you just make them at home like it's almost like you know color 
by the numbers for cooking, right? And there's other competitors in that space. Whereas Maple was a company that sent, it was essentially ghost chi- ghost kitchens and they created, they like, they had great packaging and um, the food was really good. The cookies especially were really good if I remember correctly. And it was just like super popular as an app and as a way for tech people in New York City and San Francisco, I think, to get at lunch. And, uh, you know, people would see in the office, the maple bag, which was reusable. It's a whole, it's, it's a little different thing than Blue Apron, but yes, it was a VC funded company. It may not be, uh, it may not fit in the parameters that we want. Um, but it is an example of a company that like rose really quickly, a lot of decisions made and then died just as fast. So the interesting through line I would like to maybe we should do maple because the f- interesting thing I would like to dig into there is whether or not the founders were wealthy before starting the company and if even though it failed if they walked away wealthy because of VC money because I think that's a thing not a lot of I don't hear a lot of people talk about but that's interesting is the idea that there are people out there who will raise money they'll run as fast and hard as possible and they don't really care because they know at the end of the day they're walking away with some chunk of that money so we maybe we should do this maybe that that would be interesting to me and put it on the big board yeah and since we brought up blue apron before we run i just thought i wanted to mention that while you were talking i was looking up their stock their ticker symbol yeah they are publicly traded and have been for a long time and they are currently trading at $5.50 a share for a only $37 million market cap. And I think at one point they were on a rocket ship worth probably north of multiple billions of dollars in market cap. So that's interesting. I found that to be very interesting. That is interesting. This is a bit of a tangent. I I think a lot of markets and market caps are overblown. It's, it, you know, billions of dollars for a market cap in certain verticals, certain industry, whatever. It's just like time and place. I don't know. I, I, I need to flesh out that take, but I hear like, oh, it was, you know, 5 billion. Now it's only 30 million. And it's like, cool. Is money real? I don't know. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Is money even real? All right. Last last point on the Blue Apron thing, because I've heard someone on another pod talk about this before. And I think I heard it and I was kind of like mind blown at the idea of it. Um, So in Blue Apron's case, they have a market cap of $37 million, which means if you purchased every single share, it would cost you $37 million. However, obviously you have to play, pay a premium if you were to acquire the company. Right. But Quarterly revenue, even though it has been going down quarter over quarter, and they don't seem to be profitable, in Q4 of 2022, they did $106 million in revenue. So 3x their market cap. Well, whatever, close to 3x their market cap. So the interesting thing I heard in another pod was like, why isn't someone rolling up these low market cap companies, finding ways to make them profitable? make them spit off cash and pay have their payback period be super fast. So maybe that's something for another time as well. Yeah. Another time. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, 
people just don't have the money. It's just like too big of a risk. People don't care to do it. Like, yeah, I'm, it's a good question. I don't, I'm interested to diving into it another time. All right. Awesome. Carlos, long pod, but it was fun. I hope you enjoyed. Subscribe. I did. Yes. If anyone has any opinions, takes, responses, tell us we're wrong. Please do so in the comments or wherever you're seeing this. Leave us a review. <laughs> Want to, you know, tell yeah. us, give us your take. Yeah. Leave us a five star review. Even if you think we suck, tell us we suck in a five star review. Tell us if we suck less if you're listening to it in 2X. Yeah. All right. That's the pod. Later.